kind of unreflective um, collectivism. Mm -hmm. And that's why Trump has to be a fascist. Because they're projecting themselves. In other words, they're just thinking, oh, Trump's doing on the right what we would want to do on the left. Right. So he has to be doing it as an ethno state. Yes. All right. Welcome back to the Catrone Zone. Of course, Chris Catrone is here again this Friday. He's the uh, head guru in the Catrone Zone. He'll help you get Catrone Zone pilled. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the former president, Obama. Um, based on your essay, Obama, three comparisons, MLK, JFK, and FDR, which I recently reread because I'm right now working on producing your audiobook. By the time this airs, it will be available. So people should go. And if, if you like to have books read aloud to you, if you're a podcasting type of person, go buy Chris Catron's audiobook version of The Death of, of the Millennial Left. But anyway, Chris, I've talked long enough. Great. Hey. Hello. So what? Wh why? Why MLK, JFK, and FDR compared to Obama? Did you come up on that with that on your own, or where did that come from? Um, it came out of the primaries. So I wrote several articles about Obama before his election, and then I wrote an article about Obama soon after his election. And they're all in the book. They're all in the Death of the Millennial Left, mm -hmm. and they're distributed across different topics. So I basically wrote three articles during the primaries about Obama as a black candidate, Obama as a kind of economic reform candidate in the context of the crash, the great the financial crash and the dawning of the great recession. And then finally an article on Obama as a foreign policy reformer, as a dove, as opposed to Hillary as a hawk, right? So the, um, MLK, JFK, FDR is about one dimension of Obama's competition with Hillary for the Democratic nomination in 2008. And she had made the point of trying to pigeonhole Obama into the role of MLK. And people often talked about how Obama's oratory and his, his style of, of speechifying his his voice even the resonance of his voice and of course obama himself did imitate some mlk isms right and um so she was like you know it's all well and good that this barack obama guy is like you know a black leader but you know really lbj was just as important as mlk in achieving the reforms of the 60s right and so you know, it's just a curious, it was a curious moment, right? Because they first competed over the wars mm. where Hillary was the hawk and Obama was the dove. And famously, Bill Clinton condemned Obama because Obama said that he would not have voted to authorize the Iraq war. And Bill Clinton said, if you had been in the Senate at that time, like Hillary had been, you definitely would have authorized the war. You just have this luxury of claiming that you wouldn't have because you weren't in the position of having to do so. And so, you know, and again, Samantha Power, who is an important like national security advisor, um, Obamaite, 
you know, in another article, I talk about the fact that they intended to do this major foreign policy reform and draw down the wars. But then she said, we learned the wisdom of continuity in American foreign policy that Trump is not learning. In other words, Trump is also an anti-war candidate who claims to want to make these changes, but he's not wise enough to learn the lesson that we learned, which is that you keep things the same. She also famously during the campaign, you know, she's working with the Obama team during the campaign. She said Hillary Clinton was a monster who would say anything to get elected, which is, of course, completely true. <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, it's that moment. It's the moment of Hillary versus Obama. And I talk about Adolf Reed, you know, my old mentor, Adolf Reed, and how he endorsed Hillary against Obama in the primaries. You know, why did Adolf Reed? I mean, look, the reason we're going over Obama again right now is, well, we're about to go into full full, full bore. We're going to go into the election cycle right. in the United States. Right. And there is a uh, still the lingering thought yeah. amongst many people on the left that Obama, for all of his faults, was a much more advanced candidate than either of the candidates were likely to, you know, more progressive candidate. Than, than either of the candidates were likely to be able to choose from in the next election cycle. That Curious, that though, there. isn't it? Curious, because I think that people are making the claim mm -hmm. that Biden is more progressive than Obama. Oh, are they? Uh, they are. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought that... His economic most... policy is more... You know, so we were just talking with Sora Bamari a few weeks ago in New York, mm -hmm. and he was talking about being Biden-pilled. And it's on his economic policy. And so... Biden seems to be doing the things that Obama promised but failed to do. Green New Dealism, basically. <clears throat> yeah, but okay, I'd like to know more about the green. I have not been convinced or sold on the fact that there's been Inflation a green Reduction New Deal. Act. It was smuggled in under the auspices of the Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, the Republicans are screaming bloody murder, saying it's not the Inflation Reduction Act, it's the Inflation Increasing Act, and it's the Green New Deal under another label. And then there are people who say, yeah, that's right, and that's good. So Saurabh is one. And I would say the social democratic left is like that too. I would say that there is in, like, I think Bhaskar Sankara had said that Biden is the most economically progressive president since FDR. <coughs> yeah, okay. So, okay? No, so that's the other comparison, right? In other words, um, now it's just, it's very interesting because really hanging over any discussion of Obama has to be Trump. And so there's a way that a lot of like my goal in the book and, and also just generally my approach is to read history against the grain of what happened and mm -hmm. to denaturalize history and to not memory hold things, to not forget what Obama was supposed to represent mm -hmm. and what a disappointment he was on the left. And in other words, the idea was that Obama was not good enough, but that you sort of pressure, push under Obama for more. And that's the, the attitude that the left has adopted under Biden. Now, the funny thing is, is that that seems more plausible under Biden than it did under Obama because it looked like Obama immediately sold out, conceded. Mm -hmm. He had like Wall Street. You know, so I talk about that, Obama Chicago boys, right, that his, mm -hmm. his economic team were actually these neoliberals, and this is because Obama is from the University of Chicago, blah, 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 <clears throat> you know, 
and you know, etc. And so it's just a mess in the sense that no one really has traced what happened, you know. And then other things come up, like Obamacare we got, but then the Tea Party came in and stopped the possibility of reform. And then, of course, Trump as a kind of a backlash against Obama, but that's turned into like a racial backlash as opposed to a socioeconomic backlash. Right. right? So I just will invoke my family, like who voted for Trump and who voted mm -hmm. for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. And their evaluation of Obama is he was a big disappointment. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say we something about that. this. This right. the, the idea I know that at first when Build Back Better was the policy, there were people who would say that Biden was the most progressive candidate since FDR. I but in I, office. It, um, Not as right. a candidate, more in well, office. Right. Yeah, the most progressive president since FDR. Yeah. Um but I remember the promises of Obama as opposed to the promises of Biden. So, like, for instance, in terms right. of labor, there was a, a promise of a card check approach to unionization. EFCA. Yeah. And, you know, and renew the labor movement through this reform, which right. Obama immediately canceled. Yeah. So that was the big promise to labor was we're going to make it easy for worker, easier for workers to form a union. Organized. I've been through yeah. I've been through an attempt to organize. Oh, so and, you saw firsthand what that would mean. Yeah, like I In knew practice. that I got the cards like that. Right. We, if, if that had been what it took to get unionized, we would have been unionized. We would have had a, totally we right. organized union. Neutrality, and it sort of prevents the, the hanky-panky stuff that employers can do. What happened after we got all the cards in was about three to four weeks of intense anti-union activity. <laughs> um, and... Uh, eventually the union decided just not to go ahead with the, the election at all because they thought they would lose. And rather than try and fail, they'd rather keep their record clean of always winning. Holy so, shit. That's so lame. Yeah. So, um, oh my God, you would think they would want to just at least put in a token effort, but then they have to, they like, said we needed to do a poll of all the workers. And if we had, you know, a 90%, if we had 90% of the vote, we would go ahead because usually 20, you know, certain percentage votes the opposite way. Yeah. So, and I was like, look, we've come this far. We got the cards. We've all been organizing. Let's just make our bet. And they're like, no, we're not going to, we cannot withstand the, you know, the stain on the union for the small, we're not going to do it. No, because so, they have, to have some like stupid metric or they have to be able to tout their record. It's right. like all fucking marketing, advertising bullshit. Like it's amazing. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like no, like, it doesn't count. A noble fight and lose. And your and patients don't die in your on your floor if you send them all down to another floor when they're dying. You know, like it's that oh, kind of right. Thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um. But okay. So, but I knew that if we had just had a car check, I would have been part of it. So there's even year. more to it than that than the EFCA than the Employee Free Choice Act that was dropped. So Obama also demanded mm -hmm. the reunification of the AFL-CIO. Mm -hmm. So there was the change to win, like, breakaway coalition of unions. And that um, I had first knowledge of firsthand knowledge of this in Chicago because uh, around Platypus, there were Unite Here activists 
and so they were in the change to win coalition and there was a big fight over reunifying the labor movement because you know i think that i describe it in one of the articles that um obama wanted to have one labor movement to negotiate with to have two would of course undermine the position of the government to negotiate mm -hmm. to have one and especially like with the democrats right it's like they, they're held hostage, right? But if there were two. Also, I always like to say that the labor movement probably does better, is better to operate under Republicans because they're not hostage to the Republicans the way they're hostage to the Democrats. Meaning there's like a free hand to like fight and negotiate as opposed to this kind of sliminess that you get with the Democrats. Right. Where there's like a pantomime of struggle and a pantomime of negotiation and a pantomime of compromise and a pantomime of agreement. You know, it's just, it's awful. You know? Mm. Why uh, is that? Why are the, 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 why is labor so captured to the Democrats? It's in the neoliberal era. I talk about those too. Mm. That before mm. the neoliberal era, even though the labor movement was part of the FDR New Deal coalition, they actually exercised more political independence than they have subsequently. So they've been in retreat. So since the 70s, the labor movement's been in retreat. And because of that, they've become more just hostages. They've become more solidly part of the Democratic Party's constituency base than they had been previously under, because, you know, again, the New Deal coalition, it was a coalition, and there was actually struggle within that coalition over demands and compromises there it was constantly having to be renegotiated in a way that now it's like all the constituencies are just hostages to whatever the democrats feel like they want to do and they and of course they have a seat at the table and they feel like they're participating but really no mm -hmm. right so that's i mean you know it's it's kind of politics it's the basic it's the kind of politics 101 that you need a certain amount of independence in order to be a good ally even, mm -hmm. right? If you don't have that independence, then it's not really an alliance. It's more like a subordination. So the, the other thing that I thought was that, that Obama had promised uh, was, well, he was going to protect Social Security, although he immediately put that on the chopping block and, you know, like offered it up to Republicans during the debt ceiling uh, debacle on his own initiative and they didn't even demand it you know they said no 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 right <laughs> but he offered that up and th the other thing that was possibly um creating at least a public option for healthcare, which he right. didn't do obamacare was a disaster and right. those would have been the big progressive things but the green it's new deal I it's all a bait and switch i mean you know in other words it's it's something that they dangle i mean i'll just say this what is the Green New Deal today? I mean, what is it that's in this? I, I feel ignorant that I have not followed this as closely as I should. But what is in that Recession Protection Act? What does it do? Does it, is it a jobs guarantee no, program? No, it's a subsidization of green energy industry. Okay. So it's a corporate subsidy. Total. Right. And that's big progressive. And it's also like a protectionist thing, you know, is to help the U.S. companies be competitive with Chinese companies so that green energy isn't just a Chinese manufacturing racket. Yeah, I mean, you know, so again, we should just take Sorab's evaluation, Sorab Amari's evaluations 
at face value, meaning that the way Saurabh thinks of social democracy, right? He thinks of it as like economic nationalism and caring about your own country's workers. That's what it is at some mm -hmm. level. But what is the relationship or difference between American corporations and American workers? Because it goes to the Trump bit. In other words, people are like, no, Trump was not an you know, like not an economic populist at all. He's just a corporate giveaway guy. And it's like, but so are the Democrats. And you know, and it, it and that also that can't be simply condemned as such. Right? No, he was trying to he was trying to do some onshoring. Yeah, onshoring. Right? He, which he is was trying good to say workers potentially. Yeah, and, potentially for American workers. Yeah, you know? American yeah. workers, right? And it's all, you know, the point of the matter is, is that I would say that one of the theses that I do elaborate in this book, I mean, this book doesn't really have many theses per se, but one is that there isn't a hard and fast difference between Fordism and neoliberalism. Right. No, and that and that's clear enough. I mean, right. I, I, I didn't I mean, I kind of arrived at that just by looking at neoliberalism a little more closely right. before I even read your book. And, but, right, right. but you certainly make a good point of it. Um it's both our state-centered programs of economic development. That is through right? corporations. Through corporations, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's through but corporate some of them, state cooperation. Right. The, some of the, the Fordist model uh, has more things like, you know, Social Security and job guarantees and that kind of thing in it, the old Fordist welfare state approach. And... The neoliberal approach is like, well, actually, we should. The way I think of this, really, maybe in a vulgar way, is rather than big state subsidies to help corporations, uh, you know, pay their workers, uh, which could uh, accidentally drive up the wages. You, instead, we should just give corporate subsidies directly to the corporations to help right. their profitability. Well, because it is, you know, I, they also, that happened because of facts on the ground, we might say. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, you know, there was, between the 60s and the 80s, mm -hmm. a lot happened in the 70s. Yeah, well, the first of all, the wages were cutting into the profitability of corporate America. And, and so... deindustrialization was already starting in the 70s, mm -hmm. right? It's not like... I mean, let's put it in terms of Democrats and Republicans for a second. So I was watching a film, an old film about like Nixon's last days. It's like Nixon, the final days or something. And it's it's kind of like the Oliver Stone Nixon movie, but, you know, depicts some of the same scenes, but it's a little bit different. And it's made in the 70s, I think, or early 80s. And I was thinking about Ronald Reagan ran against Nixon in the Republican primaries in 1968. And if he had won, would his administration have been different than Nixon's? Because Nixon, in many respects, really completed the LBJ Great Society programs and really fully implemented them. In the same way that Eisenhower, especially because of the Korean War and Truman, you know, expand, Truman did expand the FDR New Deal, but Eisenhower really did that. In other words, the consolidation of the New Deal really happened under Eisenhower in the same way that the consolidation of the Great Society happened under Nixon. And people used to say, I mean, again, we kind of forget this in the kind of neoliberal focus that's distorting. People used to say Reagan was a New Deal Democrat. And of course he was. 
and so, you know, again, Eisenhower and Nixon were New Deal Republicans. They weren't against the New Deal in any way. And neither was Reagan, particularly. In other words, when neoliberalism came in in the end of the 70s with Thatcher and Reagan, it's because circumstances had changed. It's not because these are people who were always against the welfare state. And, you know, that's the Democrat narrative. That is just false. Yeah, I had a book. I bought a book years ago, back probably back in the 90s. You know, these understanding blank books, like mm. understanding postmodernism, understanding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Marxism. Well, I got mm -hmm. one that was understanding Ronald Reagan. Oh. And and um, it began with a whole segment on Jimmy Carter. Right. Because a lot of Jimmy stuff Car is already happening under Jimmy Carter. Right. Jimmy Carter was the first neoliberal Reaganite. According to this understanding Absolutely. Ronald Reagan. And book. also the first Cold War II president, too. Mm -hmm. The renewed right. Cold War started under, under um, because Carter was running against the Nixon Kissinger detente policy. Right. You Carter know? came in after the uh, economic crisis of the 70s had yes. started. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> and that's what he was dealing with. Just Absolutely. like. Right. So yeah, he was beginning the policies of neoliberalism. Yes. That Reagan would then take up and and define as his own. But it were really Carter policies too. That's right. Um, that's what the, I remember from that comic book I read. No, there's there's a great deal of continuity. And so again, to blame Reagan in the way that people do, or to blame Thatcher in the way that people do, is really to miss the point. And also to miss the point that the neoliberals, like the Ordo liberals, like Hayek and Milton Friedman, they don't disagree with the New Deal. They actually don't, right? That's why they were condemned by... Well, uh, Hayek did, didn't he? I mean, which no. one of them is the one who said, you're all socialists and like stormed von out Mises. Oh, right, right. Ludwig yeah. von Mises, who condemns Hayek and Friedman, you're all right. fucking socialists, right? Mm -hmm. The crazy liberty. Uh-oh, you froze up. Starkly either because he actually understood Marxism better than a lot of Marxists did. Um, he's got a lot of insight into Marx, into Marxism, including like Lenin type Marxism. So it's a funny thing where, again, neoliberalism happened as a reform of the New Deal, not as its cancellation or its overthrowing, but as mm -hmm. a tweaking. Right, that's right. what it means to say that neoliberalism is post-Fordism. It's a tweaking under circumstances that demanded change. And now we're living under post-post-Fordism. We're we're in this moment of uh, Trumpism, and it, it will be, it and people in thirty years will have to go back and say, you want to understand, you know, the new, whatever they kind of call it, they call it the the new statism or something like that. Well, you have to go all the way back to Trump, they'll say, because uh, before Biden right. and his <laughs> right. there was Trump who brought in a lot of these things. Or maybe they'll even say you have to go back to Obama. Yeah. Some yeah. Like no, it's a funny it's it's really funny because, of course, in the Republican primaries now, people are complaining about the fiscal irresponsibility of Trump. Mm. And I'm just waiting for the Democrats to take up that mantra because they might they might say we're the fiscally responsible party as opposed to Trump. But that right. might pull that one too, because you know, this is just, it's all rhetoric and it's all meaningless at a certain level. 
And, you know, so in the book, I talk about how trade is going to be reconfigured anyway. You don't need like a Trumpian nationalism. It's going to happen. Well, it's worth noting that yeah. neoliberalism was the policy of fiscal irresponsibility. You know, it was like the policy of ballooning huge amounts of debt. Under oh, early Reagan. 80s, Reagan. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which yeah, the left and, sort of conjures away as, oh, this is military Keynesianism. And it's like, it is not. It's financialization. Mm -hmm. It's debtization. Right? It is mm -hmm. exactly. And, you know, and yes, is it justified by the Cold War? Not entirely. No, no. I mean, look, the movies Wall Street, you mm -hmm. know, the movie Wall Street yeah. came out around that time. Or Pretty Woman, which was really an 80s movie. Uh -huh, yeah. It's about these guys who come in and he's a, he's a, I don't remember what Richard Gere's character actually does, but what he, but he also exactly. does what is do buy do? companies right. and, he, and, he, and he empties them out and sells them again and makes money right. basically by converting real productive companies into just shell shells of themselves that are that he can financialize quickly and make a quick buck off of. It's how I understood uh -huh. what he did. And um, yeah, the corporate and raider. yeah, he was a corporate raider exactly. And 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 Wall Street is about a corporate that, raider too. Yes, yeah. And um, so and but that was all the eighties. That was the 80s. Uh, yeah. And I mean, so we have to be careful. You know, like look, you know, you and I are Gen X. We're old, and I wrote these articles to educate young people and I'm publishing the book to educate young people and to educate younger people. So I wrote the articles to try to educate the millennials lost cause as it turns out. Well, maybe mm -hmm. people who come later, the zoomers will want to know what happened with this millennial left and how right. they all become craven Democrats. And, you know, maybe they were all along. And so our only virtue is historical memory. In other words, that we actually live through things that for these people are antediluvian mythological history. Right. You know, well, I we think that we have other we have some other we have some other things going for us. We, not just that. No, but it's a it's a it's I'm being excessively modest, maybe. Yeah. But I can at least in other words, people can dispute everything about me. But they can't dispute that I was fucking there before they were born. <laughs> right. That's true. That's one thing they can't dispute. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I could be deluded and wrong and whatever, but some kind of, you know, empirical reporting is you know, coming out anyway. Yeah. Like the Reagan, the Reagan era is a living memory for me. It does. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, and like Occupy Wall Street was just yesterday. I don't I don't right. need to be, you know. Um, so yeah, there is that. We do have that advantage. And so and the I, advantage is that we can read history against the grain. In other words, we can note how things are being memory hold, forgotten, repressed. Right. And it's it shocking. A lot of which that happens that yes. happens, you know. We've all forgotten in the span of just a few years yep. that George W. Bush was the worst president in history ever. And that it was he was destroying democracy and we were going to live in a totalitarian authoritarian state because of George W Bush i mean he i mean truth be told he was a bad president he was the worst president i ever experienced yeah. and 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 but you know who who tops him in my book is biden biden is worse than than George W bush Possibly. in my opinion. Possibly. Well, i mean you know it's one of these things where i mean nothing that bush did has gone away uh, All the worst things that Bush did has gone away, and Biden is building things on top of that. 
And what I'm thinking mm. specifically of is the Patriot Act oh, and the sure. undermining of civil liberties. Yeah. Things that yeah. Obama, was, as a constitutional lawyer, was supposed to come in and undo and did not undo, right? Like you know, the thing with Obama is really interesting, isn't it? Because like the big cases, like Chelsea Manning and uh, Edward Snowden, and uh, in, in, to a certain extent, Julian Assange, you know, like Obama was manifestly ambivalent about these things, mm -hmm. about these cases, in a way that also Trump was too. So mm -hmm. it, there's a funny, it, it's, it's expressed very differently. So Trump was much more of a law and order, like, you know, you commit the crime, you do the time kind of guy. And Obama was more like, well, yeah, we can't let this go. And, you know, and I'm the president and I have to represent the interests of these career bureaucrats who were embarrassed by the stuff. And so, no, we can't just, you know, pardon these people. And, you know, but then with Trump, it's like a funny thing. So on the one hand, he's like, you do, you, you do the crime, you do the time, you're guilty, you're this, you're that. But then he's like, oh, but it helped me against Hillary. You know, like he's got, you know, and I just feel like that captures something more honestly. Mm -hmm. Whereas Obama was like, yeah, I'd like to do the right thing, but you know, I can't, I'm not, I can't do the right thing because whatever reasons, do you know? And mm -hmm. so do you recall that, um, Obama, the Obama presidency was considered the most opaque and secretive presidency. Yeah. And well, he used the Espionage Act more often than any other president. And he his and administration, he was, yes. His administration did. And and he uh was really a, a very bad to whistleblowers in general, is what yes. I recall. Yes. Um and the and his the administration I, again, him his he himself was kind of like, ah, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I have to do this. It's the usual Democrat thing. Right. But okay, whatever. But the 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 other thing that I recall was that um right when he was come was um coming up and getting the nomination, I believe. Yeah. Th there was a a vote on whether or not to indemnify these big tech corporations against lawsuits based on their participation in the mass surveillance. That had gone on. So he was in the Senate. Yeah. And how um, did he vote on that? I think he abstained. Fuck. So and Hillary typical. Clinton, That's typical Obama. And Hillary Clinton voted to indemnify. Sure. Uh, uh, these big tech. Yeah, you got to grant Hillary that. Well, she's you know, more, she's more the, like she's less opaque. Obama's super opaque. She had promised the opposite. Okay, she promised in the during the campaign she. Had said something like, "Well, I, you know, of course we should." Get you know, the thing with the Clintons and someone like Hillary is, you know, what their promises are worth—zero. <laughs> right, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know exactly what you're dealing with, right? Whereas Obama, it seems like I don't know, some kind of like tragedy or some kind of something or other. You know, and he's. But he's, the thing is, like, she didn't need. She had already lost the nomination by the time she waltzed mm. in and voted. Like, and so it's like she didn't have the excuse of trying to exactly. get power. Right. She just did what she wanted, and that's what she wanted. Yeah. And 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 um. Yeah. Anyway, I I just but like, what I did not look, I did not vote for Obama. Okay. I never have voted for Obama. And right. I, of the candidates back then, the most right. progressive one was Edwards. Uh huh. Right. And not right. And so I didn't vote for him because he didn't run. I think I don't remember who I voted for in two thousand eight. I may have written in a fish. Um, but uh, I I didn't vote. Well, wait, did Nader, Nader ran 
in 2000. That was when he did the big. He, didn't, he wasn't still running in 2008. I don't remember. I don't. I don't remember if he was, but but I know he ran and he cost Al Gore the election, and everyone hates him. There was a there was a Green candidate in 2008 for sure, but I'm not sure who it was. Yeah, there was, but I don't vote. I didn't really vote Green. I did vote for Nader. Um, in 2000, and then I voted for Nader again in 2004. Um, well, no, I was a Nader trader in 2000. You know, remember what that was? Mm. You would get online and you would communicate to someone who was in a swing state, and oh. they would, and so they would vote. You could they would vote for Nader for you oh. in their swing state, so or in the state where it was a red state, they would vote for matter. Nader. Yeah, right. And you would so like I was. Um, I was in a state somehow. I I think I voted for Kerry, but someone else somewhere else voted for Nader for me. You need to vote for Kerry in Oregon. Kerry was going to win Oregon. I know. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to remember what I actually did, but I what the mental flips that people do about this stuff. Let me just finish my thought. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. The Biden administration is far more opaque than the Obama administration. So the the Biden administration is much more like. We're going to do these things, but we're going to just be poker faced and disclaim everything. You know, like they're letting tens of millions of people into the country illegally across the border, of course, legally because they're asylum seekers and whatever. But they're claiming that they're not doing that. Right. They're just like the total gaslighting, like 100 percent gaslighting all the time. But it's kind of admirable. You know, they're just doing everything that they want to do and denying it all all along the way. And Obama didn't do just that. In other words, with Obama, the opacity had a different character, which is basically what can a president do? In other words, if there is this kind of state and there is this U.S. policy and there is this reality of capitalism and, you know, his hands are tied and basically his job is to be an empty suit. You know, his job is to be like the spokesmodel and to basically say what the public needs to hear. I mean, for me, so I thought we were going to talk about the black politics character. No, we should do. We should do that. Let's do that now. I have a whole, you know, section of the book on that. And again, that's that's the Obama and Clinton's essay, which is really actually what I wanted to talk about as well. So bring, so let's go into that. Cause that's all the, like, well, that's really what I wanted to get at was Adolf Reed uh, and, and Jesse Jackson. Yes. Both despised obama yes. and maybe for slightly different but maybe yeah, similar reasons. reasons even yeah. though adolf hates it, jesse jackson famously right but they both were upset about how obama was putting an end to the black politics of the, of the right left um so well, also fulfilling it in other words like jesse jackson hated obama for seemingly putting an end to that and adolf hated obama for seemingly fulfilling it and of course that's a dialectical con- so very in this book, my dialectics are very soft pedaled. They're not announced as such, right? But they're there. Right? I can see them. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, in other words, like to to see in certain terms anyway, the self-contradictory character of Obama. That he's important as a black president, but he's also this post-racial president, right? All of this stuff. And that there's some substance to that that is now sort of occluded entirely like obama himself now has this kind of well we were too optimistic 
In other words, it turns out that racism runs much more deeply. And it's all about Trump being elected because this is their explanation for why Trump was elected, is that it's white backlash against Obama, which of course it is not. That is the big, 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 big lie. Total lie. Total. And, you know, it's like they, now Obama has to say, well, no, the struggle continues. In other words, Obama has to contradict what his candidacy and his presidency was about. So if you remember Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. the beginning of Black Lives Matter, where Obama said two things. And of course, this is why he was useful as a president. Good. You know, served an ideological function. He said, if I had a son, he would wear a hoodie and he might be a victim like Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. but and then he said he I would look like Trayvon Martin. Yeah. If I had a son, he would but, look like Trayvon Martin. But then he Martin. also said, we have to respect the jury verdict that acquitted George Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you do. In other words, of course, the jury verdict has to be respected. Right. So now, of course, that he's not president anymore, he's free to just be a Democrat ideologue and demagogue. Mm -hmm. And he's much less interesting. Like, in other words, now he's just a typical black Democrat politician and, you know, also has the mantle of like elder statesman and wise old man, which is absurd. Mm -hmm. But at the time, he seemed to have been running against the established way of doing black politics and offering a transcendence. Right. And also trying mm -hmm. to be like bipartisan, have a bipartisan appeal. This is one of the things that I talk about, the third way politics. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, which, of course, the left is like, oh, that's horrible. You know, Clinton and Obama are both these third way radical centrists and like the evil of the radical center. This is what like Tarek Ali and people like Richard Seymour they're just like, the worst thing about neoliberalism is the radical center. And it's like, really? So in other words, the left still has this kind of silly idea of the Overton window. You know, and that left and right, that the far left are just the left of the Democratic Party. They're just whatever the Democrats are doing, except more extreme. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that is not a socialist left at all. Right, of course. Right? And yet... That is what people assume. And then they have the horseshoe theory that if you go too far left. You go all the way to the right again. And specifically on class. In other words, if you are too like proletarian, socialist, working class, like intransigent Marxist communist, you're going to end up a Trumpist. You're going to end up a MAGA communist. And it's like, this just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I hate all well, that. There's a, there's a logic to if you are too filled with resentment and hatred based on poverty. They don't say. mean that. They don't mean that. They mean something else. Because this whole Overton window thing, mm. I associated, maybe it predates it, but I think of it as a very neoliberal thing. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Right? And so, again, there was a moment, like, again, around 2008, actually, mm -hmm. there was an acknowledgement, and also, again, in 2016, around Bernie Sanders, there was an acknowledgement that the identity politics people in the Democratic Party may not be the left wing of the Democratic Party. And so there was this idea, a kind of social democratic left idea, which is that labor movements, the left wing of the Democratic Party. And actually, the identity politics people are the right wing of the Democratic Party. And, and so Bernie said that the establishment, its National Organization of Women, Planned Parenthood, Human Rights Campaign, NAACP, they're the establishment. And they're endorsing Hillary. 
Right. And they've abandoned the working class. Right. And mm -hmm. also Bernie was trying to run to get independent votes, but also Republican working class votes. Right. Sure. And then, of course, that had to be abandoned and he had to sign on entirely for identity politics. In 2016 already, he had to totally endorse Hillary and say Trump is a racist, sexist, homophobe. One of the things that's really clarifying about reading your book, I mean, especially for someone like me who's been through the mill for a long time around the question of identity, is to, rem to think of it as a political stance um, about coalitions of voters. Yeah rather than anything else so That's when you're saying when you're saying oh no you have to be fully on board with the identity politics that means think in terms of race and gender and sexual orientation what that's saying is you can't uh bring in uh working class people who might not be a part of this these other coalitions yes. or manage this other way yes uh, because they're going to shake up the boat and i mean it's not as though Right. The Democrats don't recognize that gay workers and black workers and women right. workers have the same class interest as white male workers. They do. They, they, they know that, that mm -hmm. but they would rather not have class involved at all. So that's why they silo them off and enter these voting blocks who they can then appease for votes with various programs that are mostly aimed at the, the, the voters anyway, which are middle not. class the upper middle class right not really right. the working class that's right. not right they're not the working class because um working you know, class the majority vote. right exactly they hardly vote but, right which is for the best there's a political class and it doesn't include for the, the democrats it's for the best that's right right best. no i know i it's not for the best really for but us snarkily, well i mean it's, no. it's okay for us because it doesn't kind of matter it doesn't matter whether they vote republican or democrat in other words you know, my right. one of my main points in 2016 was if you think that the struggle for socialism is going to exclude anyone who voted for Trump, then you've abandoned the mission. Right, right? of course. Like because yeah. it, it just doesn't matter, you know? Just like, like no no workers uh action, no effort to organize a union could ever exclude those workers who oh. like we don't want you in the union because you voted for trump come on if, right so but I obviously millennials are very confused about that and would have a hard time i mean certainly the dsa is confused about that for sure mm. right um and so you know again it's like well it's not like a beyond left and right thing either so i don't like the overton window and i don't like the horseshoe theory uh oh you broke up again I think we should claim that left. Well, means say that again. What what don't you like? The Overton window, pulling left and right, mm -hmm. moving the Overton window. I don't like that idea. I don't like the horseshoe theory idea, and I also don't like the beyond left and right idea, mm -hmm. because I think that we should not abandon that the left should mean socialism. In other words, that the left shouldn't mean like radical identity politics. And this is, of course, my Adolf Reedism, right? Mm -hmm. So. Adolf Reed is the one to basically educate me that the identity politics is conservative, right? And so when the Republicans condemn it as hyper left wing and cultural Marxism and whatever else, right? They're just complaining that these are like radical Democrats, 
that's all they're complaining about. Like it, that's not a condemnation of socialism. Like in other words, we can't take the rights characterization of the Democrats and say, yeah, that's all true and that's good. Right. Which is what right. the left does, you know. And I just feel like it's like a basic thing that we have to not allow this language. You know, the way that capitalist politics talks about left and right has nothing to do with the struggle for socialism. Right. Right. And that the third way politics was about, you know, like the, the, the kernel of truth to the third way politics or the radical center politics was this idea that, you know, the old political divisions don't apply that are not really working in terms of advancing like politics or even policy, you know, that's like, you know, we have to think outside the box and those kind of thing. And I feel like, well, surely that's the only way we're going to win, win people over to socialism. In other words, we're well, not going to win people over to socialism on the basis of, well, if you like the Democrats, but think they don't go far enough, then we are like the Democrats, but we go much further. And it's like, yeah, no, no, that's pulling in the wrong direction. <laughs> Right. Because actually, that's a right wing direction. The Democrats are the right. They're just another flavor of the right. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so you want black. So it's like I, I was thinking about this in terms of like this horrible language that they have of the black face of white supremacy. Oh, God. They condemn Republic, black Republicans as the black face of white supremacy. And I'm like, you know what? The fucking black face of white supremacy are the black Democrats. That's who the black face of white supremacy is, actually, if you want to call it that. Like, in other words, if you want to call the politics of keeping black people down, right, if that's mm -hmm. what white supremacy is, like the institutionalization of this very depressed position of the black population in the United States, then the black face of white supremacy would be the Democratic Party. It wouldn't be these right. handful of black Republicans. It would be the right. Democrats. That would be the point. Now, and why is that? Because, I mean, what you're saying is that the degree to which, I mean, let me ask you this. Why is I don't it, believe in calling it white supremacy. I'd rather call it capitalism. Yeah, but, but let's so just. As far as we're describing like the proletarianized and underclass position, right? Well, the degree to which Democrats rely upon uh, black votes based on the black population being impoverished or disenfranchised, um, and permanently so. That that's the degree to which black politicians who manage to to maintain Poverty that position, pimps. right? Poverty pimps, uh, which is what Adolf uh, calls them. But but the move, uh, I would just say that the move, the Republican, the black Republicans moving to the Republican Party. You know, the the fact that it's a, apparently twenty percent of, of African Americans now of men are vote African American uh, men. Just men? I thought it was all African Americans. It, it might be overall there is a movement a, a drift. At least right now, but it's more among men than among women. Right, but my thought when then, well, I'll look into among it. Women, I know? thought it was like eight percent of all African Americans voted for Trump, and the majority of those what pushed it was men. And I thought it was like something like twenty percent now. With mm -hmm, the, yes. again, so even more men than twenty percent. Yes. That's what I thought, but maybe it's not that. But the point is, polling. Who knows? Yeah, you know, right. That could change tomorrow. And who knows who will vote? Right. But the twenty percent that comes true, that's like then Trump wins easily. But in the swing I, states, yeah, that will decide I, it. Are those twenty percent of African Americans amongst the upper They're middle class? They're not the class? capitalists or the middle class. Definitely not. It is your working class blacks. That is who it is. So they 
they're voting for Trump because he's promising to what? What what is what are they Not getting? Really, are they voting uh, as are they voting as black people or are they voting as working class people? Are they voting as oh. Americans against immigrants? What are they voting? Think, as? I don't know. Well, some of it is going to be some of it is going to be anti-immigrant. Right. Some of it. I think it's a lot of anti-wokeism. I mean, I think that people forget that blacks are socially conservative, culturally conservative. Of course, yeah. And you know, the working class is culturally conservative, basically, but not in some hardcore way. Just in a way of like they just have a distaste for this kind of liberal. They're alienated from the liberal woke discourse. Right. Right. Not because they, they like hate trans or hate gay people or anything like that. Or like, you know, it's not like that. It's just, they're turned off. You know, the working mm -hmm. class is turned off. And I do think that, you know, Obama and Biden failed their ostensible constituency, black Americans. Mm -hmm. They did. And so now is it their fault exactly? No, but they're going to be blamed. Right. In other words, it's not like, you know, Obama is some kind of sellout at a racial level. You know, I wouldn't want to get into any of that. But the point is that people are disappointed. People are disgruntled. People are discontented. COVID, COVID mandates, COVID mandates. The working class does not like. No, no. Right. And basically voted with their feet, like didn't observe it. Like here in Chicago, like Lori Lightfoot was complaining that like the black neighborhoods were not observing the COVID restrictions. Right. And so it's very paternalistic on her part. She was just like, you know, we have to tell people that it's in their best interest. And it's like, you know, people figure out their own best interest. You know, and then they turn it into this like equity thing that the black population is being affected more than others and how it's like being against the COVID mandates is like white supremacy because you're trying to kill black people. And it's like the black people themselves did, resisted the masking and the vaccination. They did. And not because they were listening right. to Donald Trump. No, no, Donald Trump didn't say that shit. Really. He did not. Right. So, you know. And so it's just, it's all like, it's very thin demagogy too, because if you just scratch the surface, you just see how much bullshit it is. But you well, know, credulous people might believe it. Credulous white yeah. people who don't know anything about anything might believe it. That's true. The <laughs> lockdowns now, in retrospect, it's been, I think, fairly well established. At least I saw a podcast that said this, and therefore I believe it. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, uh, that what really determined the difference in outcomes most of all between nations was whether or not you're talking about an island nation or not. Mm -hmm. If you had an island nation and you could lock off your border, you're going to oh, have Oh, sure. Then, of course. Yeah. Right. And then the other coming in. Right. The other thing that made a big difference was the age and the obesity rates. Yes. In nation. Yes. Um, not the lockdowns. Right. The lockdowns were like, there's a, if there was any margin of difference between nations, the lockdowns and those kinds of measures were, like within the had a five percent of an impact, and the rest of the ninety-five percent was things like demographics and you know, and and whether or not you were an island nation or border control, and and yep. so yeah, I mean, uh, no, we've been sold a lot of bullshit. The point of the matter is the COVID policy was pretty much hopeless. Mm -hmm. It didn't help. It didn't help that much, and also it we were sold a lot of things about things uh, about COVID that in retrospect look like they were 
untrue and like the right, conservative right. reactionary right. position was actually more true like right. oh the death rates are overblown well it looks like now they were they were <laughs> you know Absolutely. uh uh, the vaccine was not that effective. Oh, yeah, it really wasn't. Um, right. uh, so anyway, it's very odd uh, to see so all these the unpopularity. Issues. I think the unpopularity of COVID uh, policy. And, and of course, the Biden, the two years of COVID under Biden were much worse than under Trump. And they've tried to say, well, Delta was more virulent than the original strain. That's not really true either. And, you know, and so the, you know, Biden presided over the Delta and Omicron waves, but right. far more people died under Biden than under Trump. Far more. Well, why is that, Twice do you think? People. What was the reason for that again? Was it just because um, there was more of a loosening up and the lockdowns weren't no, there? or didn't work. Huh? Shit didn't work. The vaccine didn't work. That yeah. was the, the problem. Right. Shit didn't work. And, and, you know, it didn't prevent the spread. And um, because, I, I mean, I have a, I guess I have a peculiar perspective living in Chicago and being in academia. I feel like we only loosen the COVID restrictions this year. Oh, I see. Right. So 2022, of course, was more relaxed than 2021. But 2021 was intense. And far more people died in 2021 than in 2020. And the vaccines were coming. We're rolling. Right. They got to the old people early in 2021. No, right. Once of see, I couldn't. I I could not visit my kids at all in twenty twenty until the vaccine started to roll out and things loosened up in Oregon. Like I was not supposed to even go I to got, someone else's house. Right, you're not right. I got my vaccine in April of twenty twenty one. My right. parents got it in late twenty twenty and early twenty twenty one. Um, you know, and so. A lot of people died after the vaccines had gotten to a large portion of the population. The elderly population, the middle-aged population, we were vaccinated within the That's first- That's because they started being more exposed to COVID after that. And it was, right? Isn't that basically- Well, the claim was that, yes, when people got their shots, suddenly they thought that they were bulletproof. I don't think that that's true. I mean, again, I lived in Chicago. Things were pretty, pretty closed down. Um, masking was enforced. And, and vaccination was enforced. It was enforced. Like certainly everybody, everyone I knew could not keep their job if, unless they got a shot. I think it was, was it the, okay, I'm going to, we're going to move on from this. Uh -huh. But Omicron was the one that was. 2022. And 2023. Was that the one where that, did that kill more people than the, the other wave? I think because Delta was maybe the worst wave. Okay. All right. Delta. Well, let's look. We'll move on because I we can, I can get bogged but I down. Think that I, that, I think that that has to do with a lot of the unpopularity among blacks and Hispanics. You know, I mean, the other thing is essential workers, the working class. I mean, the left has been all over the place on this, the far left. I think mm -hmm. the DSA has been kind of equivocal on it. But the far left has been really all over the place. So the far left had this kind of crazy idea that COVID was like a revolutionary opportunity. And At that, first, I remember thinking that. <laughs> yeah, <know>? and no, <laughs> I mean, uh, clearly not, right? And just it, in the sense uh, that the workers should refuse to work. You know, well, you have a total general strike and collapse of the economy, and that's going to usher in socialism because the workers should refuse to work because their lives are being put at risk in the name of profits. 
And so the essential workers should refuse to work. Right. And that this is yeah. going to bring about like nationalized healthcare and, and a welfare state and everything else. Right. Um, you know, the workers should seize control of the production sites to demand like complete safety. And it's like, you know, safety is just not going to happen. Like, in other words, if you're working physically on site in a chicken processing plant, nothing is going to protect you against COVID. Right. You're not going to be protected against COVID. No amount of masking. It does not matter. Because people got that. Th that is the no, point. The essential workers wore masks at work and they spread COVID there and they brought it back to their families. And that's how it spread. All of us working from home were not helping prevent the spread. We were not because the essential workers were there and they were spreading it and it was coming back to the families. And then it was like, the people who live more people to the household were more affected. That also, we can't neglect that, mm -hmm. right? So it affected communities where people live together as opposed to wealthy white people who might live alone or just be a couple, right? Or just have a couple and some children as opposed to grandparents living with the family like happens in the black and Latino communities. Mm -hmm. So of course they were impacted more. Because obesity is a wash, by the way. The idea that obesity affects black people more than white people, that's not true. No, 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 that's not true. That um, true. But it but the, it affects Americans more than it affects the Chinese or Vietnamese, you know. Right. That, that, if you want to know the difference. Between so the way the Democrats, they just spin the stuff. It's totally Orwellian, Doug. We are living in a totally Orwellian world with the fucking Democrats. Right. Because they just right. turn everything, right? And they mm -hmm. just use this double speak. And, you know, and they're just like, you know, they're, they can claim that they're acting in the interest of racial justice and racial equity, while they're really rationalizing policies that don't help and might even hurt minority communities. Right. And yeah. it's not like, it's not like that's a mystery. In other words, people in their everyday life are aware of reality, you know, right, like, right, right, right. You know, it's you a know, mystery to white democratic leftists who don't know any Democratic black party. Yeah, right, right. Really, right. or who know or know black people who are amongst their same class. Exactly, right. But but the um, I guess the the thing about Obama though the the promise the the kind of the radical kernel in Obama was that he that he was as you said a while ago the the both the termination of the new left racial politics and its realization realization right. right so how was he the realization of it again well so i have an article in the book called angela davis how does change happen mm -hmm. and so the catchphrase from that angela davis was hillary and obama were not the change that they had struggled for in the 60s mm -hmm. in other words to have these presidential candidates is not the point of the liberation of blacks and women that the 60s fought for. And I'm just like, well, why not? How, how, how is that not the case? In other words, aren't you protesting too much, Angela Davis? Aren't you actually saying this is the liberation we were fighting for? We might have pretended to be more radical. We might have pretended to be Marxists and communists, but actually this is the content of our movement. Mm -hmm. To have a female president or a black president, that is the only result possible for that new mm -hmm. left politics, right? And so the fulfillment 
would also be the transcendence, but also it's the negation because there obviously was more to the new left. In other words, there was more to the new left, we might say objectively, potentially, into my mind, than subjectively. In other words, the consciousness of the new left is a problem. There was an actual crisis of capitalist politics and even a crisis of capitalism in the 60s and 70s that could have been an opportunity for a reborn socialist movement. What was the problem? The consciousness. I mean, I hate to sound like a Trotskyist or something, but I <laughs> feel like that was the problem. Like it wasn't a massive ruling class conspiracy that was that defeated the new left. The new left had an inadequate consciousness of its own potentiality. Mm -hmm. Right. And Obama does embody that, and Hillary does embody that, actually. They, yeah. they embody just that problem. Yeah, okay. Well, I want to ask you about, um, uh, in the second half, about what you think this current moment and current slate of politicians might em embody in terms of the left and how we might situate Trump mm -hmm. as, a, as a part of the left. Mm -hmm. Or is, <laughs> is that possible? Within, in other words, as expressing, again, there's the objective and the subjective, right? And I would include right. politics in the realm of the objective. In other words, mm -hmm. like an actual breakdown of the, even the, the, even the surface level breakdown of like electoralism, mm -hmm. the slight fraying of the electoral machine is an objective phenomenon, right? It, it yeah. expresses something, it's real, it's, it's bound up in a historical process it's the result of something like we have reached an exhaustion of a certain way of doing things mm -hmm. at a at an economic level, at a political level, at a cultural level. And again, that exhaustion of the post-60s period, the neoliberal moment, <clears throat> presents itself in contradictory ways. And we can't shy away from that contradiction just because it, on the face of it doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense because we're still trying to apply the old framework to the new situation. And so we have right. to actually pay attention to the new newness of the new situation, right? Because it's easy to say, like um, Adam Curtis did in hypernormalization, that Trump is just some kind of like Reagan 80sism to the nth degree. That's easy. Right? Right. right. But it's clearly not true. No, it's right. It's clearly not true. So we'll talk about that and about other kind of current uh, event type things in the parrot room. Um, I'm going to uh, end it here and I'll send you another link in just a bit. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>